Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. I have uh, a guest that I've been greatly anticipating to come on and kind of share his story and what he's been up to. Uh, his name is Justin Wren. A lot of you've probably heard of him from, from the Joe Rogan experience and some of his other uh, endeavors by you know going over to the Congo, building wells for the Pygmy tribe and you know spearheading a big uh, a bullying prevention program here in the United States as well. So um justin thanks for taking some time and coming on the show hey thank you so much zach uh you're one of my biggest inspirations my man as uh i i know that i can relate to a lot of the listeners so thank you so much for having me on your show it's an honor yeah yeah no i've it's uh it's been one i've been excited to have for a bit here and you know if anything else just to kind of catch up with you a bit because uh you know, you're, you're a busy man. You do a lot of different things. So it's always fun to kind of hear what you've been up to recently. And, and I heard, a I heard a, a little whisper that you're maybe down in Austin these days. Yeah, I, I actually came down, uh, you met some of the crew and you were part of a workshop that you and I got to put on for Aubrey Marcus and his fit for service, his kind of business mastermind group and really a community of people that, that I needed to find because, uh, the premise is basically to be of service. You must be fit for service. So to to make a difference in this world, um, you must be fit to serve the world in all different areas that that we need as individuals, whether that's uh, relationally with a community and support system or uh, financially uh, to do the more you have, the more you can give, but also like nutritionally, right. Or physically, uh, spiritually, mentally, you know, being firing on all cylinders and not just being great in business and then burning out, uh, everywhere else, because you can be a great business person and, you know, you have a marriage breakdown. Um, then, you know, that might take away from that business might crash because now all of a sudden you go through a depression from a divorce or this or that, you know, that's just one simple example, but they, we just want to be good everywhere. A well-rounded, like a martial artist or like you, you have to be well-rounded to, to be able to run those kind of races that you do. And so uh, I came down here just to visit about six weeks ago in Austin home base for me is Oklahoma city. You've come and you visited uh, our home base and headquarters, a fight for the forgotten. Um, but man, I came six weeks ago. I thought I was going to be here a few days. I was going to do Aubrey's podcast. Um, and I was going to do uh, another couple podcasts and I was going to be out of here and I haven't gone home yet. So, I mean, I went to see my mom and grandma uh, for Thanksgiving, came right back. 
I'm going to go a flight Atlanta. I come right back here. So I've, uh, I guess, unofficially moved already to uh, Austin. I've been living out of a suitcase for six weeks. And uh, it's just, it's, I've already got a place. I'm going to be splitting time. I love it here, man. Everyone's so active. Uh, maybe it's a little bit like Scottsdale or Phoenix where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, Oklahoma is a great place. Oklahoma's home for me. But uh, I, I love, you know, cities like Denver or Phoenix or Austin where uh, you can go find gluten-free restaurants. I just got back from one of those because I'm celiac. I need that kind of stuff. So to have just like a plethora to choose from is, uh, is really something special. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exciting news. I'm, I'm glad you, you've kind of found a nice little spot there and living out of a suitcase for you though, Justin, this sounds kind of like a luxury item to some degree when you, <laughs> when, when people kind of read about or hear about kind of where, where you first kind of popped up in, in terms of some of the things that you've done in terms of giving back. But before we get into the ad, I do want to touch on some of the things you just mentioned, where sure. it's like, it's, it's interesting because like for someone like you, you give so much, right? You, your, your, your big push is to kind of help these people that have been forgotten. And, you know, you obviously have a background story that, that gives you reason to want to do that. But ultimately, you know, if you, if you give too much at the expense of your own health and your own well being, you can find yourself in a position where all of a sudden you're not able to kind of give as much as maybe, maybe you would have been able to, if you take a step back, it's kind of that one step back, two step forwards type of mindset at times, isn't it? Yeah. Well, brother, you, you know, um, a lot more than a lot of people, uh, to me and, and my, my year of 2020, um, and how hard it's been. Uh, and the reason is, is because I did burn out. And I think that's why I was called to fit for service and having that tribe of support where I can, you know, lean on people and let them know if I'm struggling or ask them questions that I'm facing that, that they might have already, you know, they might be a little further down the road than me. Um, but yeah, I, I started Fight for the Forgotten. I started helping others, you know, because I, I, I'm just a compassionate dude. But at the same time, when I would help people, it would help me. Um, and so, but I think there's um, an unhealthy way to do that. If all you do is help and you don't help yourself, if you don't help yourself first, do the deep in, in internal work. You know, I, I was ignoring some of the things that I probably shouldn't have. Um, I was so focused on the nonprofit, so focused on our vision, our mission to defeat hate with love, to knock out bullying worldwide, to, to, to get land, water, and food for the pygmy people, to see freedom happen for, for them. And, um, and also here stateside, over 100,000 students impacted. And I was just on a mission for that. But I honestly wasn't taking time. Um, you can't give what you don't have. And, you know, you got to fill up before you pour out. Or, I mean, another way, and I don't want to sound too woo-woo, mm-hmm. is like if you if you connect to like a source greater than you or a community greater than you, if, if all you have is what you have, then you're kind of like a, a, a reservoir and you can only give from that. And at some point it runs out. But if you connect to this community, this tribe, this uh, power greater than yourself or, or this sense of purpose, I think you can be a river instead of a reservoir. So you can continually give if you're connected to a source that's just filling you up, then you can continually pour out. But at some point after nine years, you know, starting Fight for the Forgotten in 2011, going to see the Pygmies and never really taking a real vacation or time for myself, um, doing some counseling on things. But man, I was a nut was see that I've got to change that. I am an addict. And uh, that's hard for me to say because I want to, I don't want those labels. I want to break through. I want to be a, a person of, um, 
you know, high performance um, and, and not put those like limiting beliefs on myself. But man, I relapsed, I relapsed hard this year and it was because I wasn't taking time for me. I went through a divorce. Maybe that's why I used that, uh, that analogy earlier. Um, but that, that hurt me, you know, I couldn't help the person I want to help the most and I wasn't helping myself. Um, and so we just thought we'd be healthier individuals, like, like having a divorce and not to get into all those details, but from that, I didn't take time for me. I just, I continually poured back into, uh, almost being a workaholic, even though it's a nonprofit, you know, I was sleeping at the office, I was going to the gym. I didn't have a kitchen and my shower was at the gym. I was, I was sleeping on a futon. Um, and from that, I mean, that's not a healthy way for anyone to live. Um, and so I wasn't taking breaks. I wasn't, um, truly taking care of myself. I was trying to take care of everyone else and just thinking, you know, I'll get around to myself or it will work itself out. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll heal in time. And really I needed to take time for my healing. So our board of directors at fight for the forgotten, I'm so grateful for them. Whenever I just shared with them, Hey, you know, I relapsed and this, this took me in a way that I didn't expect and I need some help. I haven't, you know, the last nine years I've been so focused on building fight for the forgotten and the nonprofit work and initiatives. Like I never took time to give myself the resources, the tools to truly defeat this addiction or to keep it at bay long-term. It's a, it's a day by day process, you know, one day at a time, but, and I, and I built time up just by helping others um, but man, I needed coaching just like you need coaching to perform at what you're doing. Uh, I need coaching to perform whenever I fight. Um, I needed coaching, building a nonprofit like to, for me to stay away from Oxycontin, which man, that, that, uh, that's the DOC that really takes me out the drug of choice, um, that opiate and to, to keep that darkness away. Like I need to build walls and defenses and I need to have people in my corner, write strategies. I need to know what to do whenever certain things come up. And uh, so I'm not a guy that deals with a lot of cravings. I'm not a guy that has this mental obsession about using. Um, but I am a guy that if I do have that first use, like that first pill, I take that one pill, the pill takes me. And so um, I need to know what to do to, to one, never get to that point, cut it off early and then like have a, have a plan in place, like right when it's there, or if I accidentally do slip up, which I don't plan on ever doing again, you know, but I need to be aware and I need to have the right strategies, the right training, the right protocol, um, to be able to, to perform well whenever, you know, I'm, I'm staring at, uh, I don't know how to say it. Just, I need defenses. And just like I'm training for a fight, this is the biggest fight of my life. Why did I never go to training camp? Mm -hmm. So I decided, um, to go to, treatment. The board of directors sent me there. I was there May 15th through August 15th. And, you know, I came out of there and being the founder of a nonprofit and being on a podcast now with a, with an actual donor and someone that's helped raise awareness and, and, and funds for us in the past and is planning on do it in the future. You know, our board was like, you know, what are optics going to be like? What's it going to look like? And it's like, do we, do we, wait until you have a full year of sobriety, which now I have seven years and, or sorry, seven months and three days uh, today. But it's like, no, let's just go ahead and start. Uh, not me. The board was like, just be open, be transparent, be real. Like people don't want to, um, you know, people can read through the BS. They can sniff that out. And so just be genuine. And so 
I mean, I guess I, I'm not really sure how I got that deep into that side <laughs> of it and that story, but I'm just so grateful for who you are, brother, and how you inspire me and how we like, we vibe on that or we feed off that with each other. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for who you are and uh, really, really grateful for this second lease at life. I know that, uh, that I'm not done yet and that that's not my legacy uh, to be trapped in addiction. And now it's part of my story where I can share that openly. And hopefully that can encourage someone that if they're listening to this or if they know somebody that's currently going through that, or if in the future um, they're facing it or one of their loved ones is, or a friend or a coworker um, that, that this story will help someone in a dark time, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Justin, I think one thing that comes to mind too, just from your story in general is like, you know, you had, you know, that had that history of addiction that you kind of went over that hurdle at one point in your life. And then you had so much kind of come in the way of the organization um, and your marriage and things like that, that probably allowed you to almost maybe, I don't want to say ignore that you used to have that, but at least like you were able to like occupy your time so much that it just wasn't an option. But then, you know, some kind of thing happens in life that maybe disrupts that. And then all of a sudden that option kind of reappears on the table. And then you have to like, you know, readdress it to a degree. And, you know, ultimately I think from what you've told me today and in the past, it's like this time around, like you recognize a lot more specifically, like what you need from other people as well as what you can give other people. And that's, what's going to you know, hopefully keep you or make you successful going forward and give you that kind of second, second round of, uh, of, uh, you know, giving back more or less. Yeah, man, it's, uh, that's so true. I, I learned that, um, you know, I can't ignore it. I got to face it head on. And, uh, and maybe what I thought I, you know, I didn't want to put myself in this category of, of addicts. I didn't think, you know, I'd ever be a guy to go to AA and sit in these rooms and hear these old timers, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and like living about the, you know, complaining about the good old days and, and living what I thought and perceived as like a defeated life of like, it used to be fun, but now this sucks, but at least I'm sober. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't want that to be part of my story or my journey, but man, I, what I found through not sobriety, but recovery, like working a program of recovery is like, you get to help people every day, those around you. It doesn't just have to be in Africa doesn't just have to be in schools. Like it can be in my own neighborhood. It can be at a, at a recovery meeting and that there's real freedom and joy in it. And for me, man, it's another way of giving and it's a way of giving to myself to make sure that I'm doing the right things to have a sustainable long-term impact. And uh, that's what I'm after with fight for the forgotten. I'm, I'm trying to build something that outlives me, outlasts me. That's bigger than me. It's not about me. And we just had our best board meeting ever. And in fact, like for me to have had the year that I have had into, I was, I was in tears with them uh, in joy celebrating. I thanked every board member by name and gave specific reasons. And it just kind of came over me. I wasn't even thinking about doing, I was thinking about starting off the meeting that way and it just didn't happen. And then all of a sudden it just was so perfect at the end of the meeting. And I remember the board, you know, saying that, uh, you know, in this time of weakness, brother, like, or bro, um, uh, I was on the phone with one of our, our board members and they sent me an email and the email said, uh, they used my own words against me. They said, it's time for the board to put love and compassion in action for you. 
and we've been standing behind you, but now we're going to stand beside you and stand in front of you with a shield. Um, we're going to protect you and the organization um, and our donors, and we're going to do the right thing. We're going to get you to treatment, and it's going to give you these tools. It's not a punishment. It's a gift. Don't think of it as, um, as a downtime. Think of it as a rest time uh, to fill back up, but also to sharpen your your sword, um, to sharpen the axe and to, to get a whole new um, skill set uh, to apply to your life and make yourself better, the organization better. And so it was just, uh, it was really cool, man, like how it turned in. And I, I even at, thanked our newest board member because I, I went through Jim and Susan. You've been there, you know, you know, Jim and Susan. I'm like, you mm-hmm. guys have been here behind me for eight years and you've watched this grow and us get thousands of donors from over 50 or all 50 states and over 59 countries. Like this has been incredible. It's been wild. It's I'm so humbled. But then when I got to uh, our board member, Josh, he's such an addition, uh, an executive vice president of a bank. And he's really helping us, you know, um, on the financial side. Um, and he's worked with a lot of nonprofits. I'm like, Josh, like for you to step in to the nonprofit, knowing everything I've been through this year and how I, I you know, I messed up, but uh, the first six months were the, were the hardest six months of my life, but this last six months has been the best six months of my life. And it's like, we didn't lose a board member, not even one. We didn't lose all the board members. Like we gained a board member. Like that's, that's just wild. And I was in tears thanking them and some of them were wiping tears. And anyways, man, all I know is that whew, you can think you're defeated. You can think you're just surrounded with darkness. Um, but man, light what is that? The dawn comes in the morning, like after the darkest night um, comes sometimes the, the brightest, most beautiful sunrises. And uh, I, I literally had something like that happen to me this year. And um, yeah, I mean, life is beautiful. And, and, and I, I love this life. And I haven't always been able to say that I've dealt with depression as a kid at 13 years old, clinically diagnosed with depression. I found the sport of wrestling. That was my outlet at the time. That was my release. That was my purpose. That was my sole sense of identity. And then I became a fighter and then that didn't fulfill me. And then I stepped away as a depressed, drunk, drug addict at 23 years old. But then I found the pygmy people. I started working with them um, and that gave my life such purpose. And then it's, it's just been this quote, man, that I, I heard at 23 for the first time. I think it was Socrates or Aristotle. And it says, no act of kindness, no matter how small ever goes wasted. And now my story looks like it was this um, big grand vision from the beginning, which isn't true. I started at the, you know, an at-risk youth shelter um, in Denver uh, or center and then the homeless shelter and then the children's hospital. And then all of a sudden I ended up in the rainforest and then brought it back here to schools and I mean, it's just grown one step at a time or one small act of kindness at a time. And anyone can do that. You do that, Zach, and your listeners can do that. And just let's have our head on a swivel looking for a way or looking for a place that we can, we can make a difference or for a person. Um, and, you know, I, I had that recently happen here in Austin. It was one of my first uh, days down here. And it was my, my first date with someone new and 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 it was like so incredible and our our waiter came and uh i give him my card he comes back and he gives me my card back and there's no ticket and i'm looking at him like where's where do i sign you know where do i give you your tip he was one of the best waiters we had ever had or i'd ever had and he just goes you know 
12 years ago was whenever you first started impacting my life. I started watching you fight. And then he goes, I heard your story on the Joe Rogan experience after, um, and this was probably nine years ago or something after the ultimate fighter. And he was going through a big depression. He had really thought about self-harm and he goes into a story and is like, I saw you in Dallas and I, I wanted to come up and shake your hand and tell you how you, you changed my life and helped save my life. And like, he's making me start tearing up. He's telling me some of the kindest things. And uh, I was just blown away. I was floored, you know, and, um, and he bought our meal. He's like, I bought your meal. I just wanted to tell you, thank you. And that I'm not saying this to like pat myself on the back. I'm saying for that guy, like he blessed the mess out of me um, at that time. I mean, he made it a, a cool story for our first date. Um, she was like, you, you, you must have paid, paid him and planted him there. Um, I'm like, no, I promise. And uh, I still get teased about that. But it was, uh, anyways, I guess what I'm saying is all of us can make a difference, right? Um, not too long ago, two years ago or a year ago. Someone paid for my Starbucks, um, but it I, it wasn't anyone that saw me, knew my story, anything like that. It was someone in the in the car right in front of me, you know. And we can look for those moments. It can be, you know, the homeless guy on the side of the street. Sometimes, uh, me and a couple friends would get stuff from hotels and our shampoo and soap. I always take that with me. We can put that in a Ziploc bag and just have it in our car. And I don't personally like giving. Uh, homeless guys, a lot of money. Cause sometimes they go use it for drugs, but Hey, here's some, you want to go get something mm-hmm. to eat or you want a soap or shampoo. And so I've just truly been inspired this last six months that like, I'm not done yet, that that wasn't the legacy I was supposed to leave and relapse or overdose. And, um, that the work that's been done so far is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to do. And, um, so anyways, man, like people like you make it possible. And uh, I don't want to take up too much time just rambling. But I'm grateful <laughs> no, for you, man. It, they hear me ramble often enough, so you can ramble all you want. But <laughs> I think the one the one interesting thing, Justin, too, is just like you you have this mindset now where there's more to give. And uh, I do want to jump a little bit back into some of the things that you've done, just for some listeners who maybe are unfamiliar. Sure. Although I will mention that, folks, if you are really interested in kind of a deep dive into everything Justin's done. How many times have you been on Rogan? Like eight, eight Uh, times. Okay. So your story is, I mean, it's super detailed descriptions of it on there too. And and Joe did a phenomenal job of kind of giving you space to kind of share all that too. So um, in, in an effort to not necessarily repeat too much so we can kind of share with what you've up to more recently and what you have coming up and all that stuff too. I I don't want you to feel like you have to kind of repeat too much of that stuff because people can find it if they want, but I do want to talk a little bit about just the pygmy tribe in general. Um, What was it that first got you? How did you identify the pygmy tribe over in the Congo? Because I'm thinking of myself, like if I decided like one day, okay, I'm going to just try to help a group of people. Like I'd have to do some research to come up with the pygmy tribe in the Congo in order to know that's who I decided. And what was it about them that moved you in the first place? Well, it's a, a wild story. I'll try to get through pretty quick. I think I, I actually don't think I've shared this on Joe's. I don't think. Cause it's a little bit of a wild and crazy story. I, um, I, I didn't know who the pygmy people were. I didn't know that hunter gatherer tribes still existed. I thought we were living in modern times. If someone told me about the pygmy people, I might've thought uh, Papua New Guinea or somewhere in Brazil, uh, the Amazon, Peru, 
But I didn't even really know there was a rainforest in Africa. I thought of like Egypt and desert. I thought of like South Africa. I thought of Kenya and I thought of like Savannah or, you know, safari type stuff, but not like thick, lush rainforest. I thought of rainforest being India, Brazil, you know, Thailand, um, certain parts of Asia. I, I didn't know. I was ignorant to not know geography and, and also that um, the second largest rainforest in the world is in Africa, the Congo Basin rainforest. But I'll let you know, man, I, I was kind of purpose, not purposeless, but I had started at the children's hospital as an official volunteer, but um, I, I stepped away from fighting because win or lose, I had an excuse to use. Um, it was like a roller coaster ride. You want to celebrate or you want to numb and escape and uh, whenever you don't perform well. And um, I, I don't know if you, do you ever experience anything like that? If you're just totally bummed out from a competition, I, it might be different with fighting because you're fighting, you're in front of a bunch of people. And if you get your butt kicked like that hurts your ego. But, um, but for, for you, you know, you take, you, you put so much into it. And then if you feel like you should have, could have, would have done better. Um, I don't know if that just kind of like sucks some, it's almost soul sucking sometimes, but also it can be, it can drive you to be better than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I got in that cycle of addiction, uh, that's what I would turn to. So I stopped fighting for a year. I started volunteering and then I was sober 11 months completely. And I just ended up saying a prayer one day. I don't know what prompted it except for a hunger to know, um, direction and no purpose and have meaning. And all I did, I wasn't a religious dude. I still don't consider myself like religious, but I said a prayer and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I said that prayer and boom, all of a sudden I had like a vision. I know that sounds wild and it can sound crazy and I'm all right with that. I've, I've started to become comfortable with it where I, I just had a movie in my mind, man. And I know you visualize being, you know, the fastest dude to ever run the hundred miles. And I would do that at the Olympic training center, um, to, to be a national champion in wrestling. And I got to do that twice. And I've had sports psychologists walk me through it so many times. And the sports psychologist normally would, um, hopefully this will, will be relevant to your audience, you know, at, at HPO, but I, I, um, I, I recognize a difference between the sports psychologist and the Olympic gold medalist. The sports psychologist would normally have you feel the thrill of victory and they just walk you through your perfect match and, and everything goes great. And um, you get your hand raised and you hear the crowd celebrate and you go and you hug your mom or your coaches and it's always good. But with our, our Olympic gold medalist, Kenny Monday, Kendall cross, Kale Sanderson, man, those guys would oftentimes you would start good. You would end the champ, but in the middle, somewhere along the way, it's worst case scenario. It's, you're going to have to come back from, from, you know, near defeat or, uh, you know, you didn't get off to a good start. You, now you got to come back from behind. Um, and those guys would always make you overcome adversity and, uh, almost negative visualization for a moment. And then what are you going to do? Sink or swim, you know? And I got off on a tangent there, but to get me to Congo, I didn't try to conjure anything up. It wasn't like I was trying to have a, a visualization drill or moment or see myself in the rainforest or meet, meet anybody. I just said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And boom, I was in the rainforest walking down a footpath, the most vivid thing I've ever seen, almost like I was there experiencing it, but I I wasn't, I was just in my mind and I'm walking down a footpath, barely bigger than my 
feet um, are wide and I'm clearing thickets and vines out of the way. And then I hear drumming, very distinct drumming. Uh, and then I hear uh, singing. I get closer and I hear singing and it's this very distinct tribal tonal language that I never heard before. And then I come into this clearing and I see these huts that are shorter. They're like five foot tall, maybe. And they're covered with twigs and leaves or built with twigs and covered in leaves. And uh, it wasn't super detailed, but all of a sudden I, I meet this person and I don't talk to him, but I see that he's like a skeleton with skin on. You can see his ribs. He's coughing. I know that he's sick. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He doesn't have clean water. He's oppressed. And I know that I know he's enslaved, that he calls someone master. And I came out of that vision where I don't know if it was 20 seconds, if it was two minutes, but um, it was, I, I, it was such a strong feeling of emotion. My heart broke for them. It was crushed. And I, I, I wept for them. Not like a little tear came out, but like a little puddle of tears, like a half dollar, silver dollar size puddle of tears. And I knew that they felt forgotten. That was the word I felt forgotten. And I wept in a way that I was almost hyperventilating, like having, having a hard time breathing, crying for these people that I don't know who they are, where they are, and what I'm supposed to do about it. Um, and it took me three days to tell uh, now a friend, Caleb, but I met him and he was a wild guy. Like he wrote a Ford for Bear Grylls book or no, he, Bear Grylls wrote a Ford for his book. And then he helped develop survival trainings around the world. He was a humanitarian. He lived with the Vanuatu people that, that did, invented bungee jumping um, and lived with the Maasai warriors who would spear hunt lions or protect their, their livestock and their children from lions. And I'm like, well, if there's one guy I could probably tell this wild vision to, maybe it's him. Because I came out of that vision thinking, one, I'm nuts. Why is the most psychedelic experience I've ever had not on psychedelics? Like it was, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sober. There's no drugs. And um, I can never tell anyone this because they're going to think I'm psychotic. Like I had some sort of psychotic break and no one's going to believe this. And three days later, I meet Caleb. I tell him and he stops me and says, I know who they are. And I go, what? And he said, those are the Mabuti Pygmy people. And I said, who? And he said, they're in the Congo Basin rainforest. I'm like, where? Where's that? You know? And uh, he goes, this is crazy because my wife asked me to cancel my trip to go meet them in three and a half weeks. She just asked, but said, uh, if I have, get a sign, then I should still go. And I'm like, okay, why'd she ask you to cancel this trip? This is crazy. What's going on? Like, I'm floored. And he said, the rebels took over the airport. They're beheading people in the streets. It's a million person city. The United, the United Nations, the U S state department said no Americans, no Westerners should go to Congo for any reason whatsoever. Um, and he said he was taking a team of three people. They're doing a scouting trip to see if they could help the pygmy people um, just with anything practical, tangible. What do you need? Like assess their needs. And I'm like, this is crazy. And he said, look, those three people canceled on me, but if you had a vision, if you go, I'll go. And I'm like, wait, wait, you told me it's crazy. We go tell his wife and his wife changes her mind from him not going to he should go. And I'm like, this is <laughs> wild. So Caleb goes, I go with a buddy named Colin. We take five or six airplanes. We, uh, you know, get in a truck for six to eight hours. The, the runway we landed on, they cleared it with machetes while we were circling it, trying to land on a runway where they don't know, they don't know when the last time an airplane landed there. 
Then we're on motorcycles through the rainforest. We get on a canoe and go across this river with crocodiles and hippos. We get out and we're walking for 30 minutes and no joke, bro. It was, we hear drumming. Then we hear singing. Then we come into a clearing and the first guy we meet, he, his ribs are, you know, not poking out, but you can count every one of them. He looks like a skeleton skin on. He has tuberculosis. He's sick. They tell us how they have no clean water, that they're hungry, that they're um, oppressed. We meet their slave masters. And the chief even says, um, you know, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. And like Caleb and Colin, before the chief said that, they're grabbing my, like each one of my traps and saying, this is your vision. This is your vision. And I was weak in the knees. I had to take a knee. First, I was in a full squat, elbows on my face or elbows on my knees, hands on my face. And I, I, I still don't have uh, probably a rational reason that can, uh, you know, that science can explain and stuff like that. But, dude, it happened. And if it wouldn't happen to me, I wouldn't have believed it. And if someone told me that story, I'd probably doubt it. But uh, Caleb and Colin are two great dudes that are my witnesses that, that they believe the vision happened before I did because I was just so, like, jaw dropped. Didn't understand it. But if I didn't have that moment, I would have never um, – I would have never dedicated my life to keep going back. You know, I had a one and a half year old kid die in my hands. I buried him. Um, and that wrecked me. That changed me. But I've had malaria three times. It almost killed me twice. Really almost killed me once. Like I was right on death's door, lost 33 pounds, five days, had blackwater fever. I mean, that, that story is well documented on, on Joe's show. So I won't go into it too much, but whenever I start doubting, I just think like, I had a vision like I'm supposed to be here, you know, mm -hmm. like whenever my family was telling me come back because malaria, well, you know, there's better doctors, there's better hospitals. I'm like, yeah, but they don't face this every day. These doctors do. These people do. I'm like, why would you stay? Why would you put your health at risk? I'm like, well, because one, I had this vision and two, it's an opportunity at more understanding, more understanding of their suffering. And like, it's, uh, it's not just me reading about it or me just seeing it or hearing about it. It's me living it and experiencing it. And so it deepens my compassion for them and my understanding for them. And so, um, again, I hope this doesn't come off as like me, you know, pounding my chest or, or, or patting my back, but it's like that vision is what has sustained this whole mission is like, I can always go back to that and not like, like my foundation of belief in this thing can't be shaken um, because I had a vision. It came true. 73 water wells have been drilled over 3000 acres of land have been given back Four sustainable farms. We're about to build 35 homes for 35 families who have never had a home at all, you know, just a hut. And they've been evicted from the rainforest. We've expanded from Congo to Uganda. You know, there's a vision in place that we want to expand to the, eight or nine African nations that the pygmy people live in. We're developing partnerships and relationships with people in those nations now to see how we can expand and get there. And um, I believe it, man, we're going to bring right now over 60,000 people getting clean water every day. Uh, I hope that number gets to 600,000. I hope it gets to 6 million, you know, one day, like mm -hmm. it's uh, it's going to happen because there's, because it's bigger than me and there's more people willing and ready to help. And so we just have to continue to, to share the story and raise funds and, and get, get it to empower the people that, that, that need it the most.
All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, it's it's really interesting just to hear you kind of explain that. And obviously, I think, yeah, you have this like, almost this aura of just like your background with it, where, you know, based on your experience that it was the thing to do and can to continue to focus on. And I think like when you started to the pygmy tribe more or less was considered in their area as like subhuman, right. They weren't, Mm -hmm. they were, they had no human rights essentially. And um, tell us a little bit about what it was like when you kind of first got there. Um, What was like your experience? Like, cause I'm guessing like the, Although I guess you went with some guys who had been there before, but did you go through like just a typical day as a, as a pygmy for a while and get a, like a real good look at like, what is the average day like for one of them? Yeah. Well, I, I got to do that for a full year and close to two years now, but uh, my first trip was a month. My second trip was a month and then the next trip was a year. And then I've gone on a bunch of trips since then. But um, that first month, like it was devastating. Honestly, like leaving there, I felt so defeated. I had so much culture shock and I was like, Caleb and Colin were going, what are you going to do? And the chief had asked, you know, can you help us with land? Can you help us with water? Can you help us with food? I'm like, I'm a fighter. Like, I don't like, I have the ability to do that, but I don't know what to do here. Mm -hmm. And uh, the odds are insurmountable. Like, what what am I supposed to do? The problem's too big. I'm too small. But um, what I remember telling Caleb, I go, man, looking at this problem, it feels like, just the kind of the visual in my mind was like trying to empty the ocean with an eyedropper. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, if I spent my whole life doing that every moment, every waking breathing moment, I doing that, would it ever make a difference? Would anyone notice it? Would I notice it? <laughs> like, and man, I remember Caleb telling me, bro, every one of those drops is a, like, think of it as a person. Think of it as like a name. Like every name has, every drop has a name and like, yeah, it's important because every person's important. And so that kind of got me to really think. And then I couldn't sleep at night when I came back home, like they didn't have a bed, you know, they, they sleep on the dirt. Um, the, that's their bed and the fire is their blanket. And I just felt so, and, and you're right. They had no human rights. Uh, they were literally be hunted, killed, cooked, and eaten by their slave master, not, not their slave master, sorry, the rebel groups. So they're already enslaved. They're thought of as half man, half monkey. They're only paid uh, only in, in bananas or small fish. Um, 
because slave masters would say, do you pay your animals or do you feed your animals in the West or back home in the States? And it's like, wow, this is the mindset that like we're up against. Or if they thought of them more as property, they're like, you know, I own these people. These people are my property. Like I'm not going to pay them money. They don't know what to do with money. They've never been paid money. They're the people of the forest. And it's like, okay, but that needs to change. And like, how do we start? And so what's really cool now is we've been working with the local, the state and the national government to get them representation, all the land that is in their name, over 3000 acres, they own it. It's not fight for the forgotten. It's not our partners that are there. Um, We're kind of caretakers and keep them accountable and, or just make sure that the land is, is being used for, for, for either living cultivation or as a sanctuary for hunting and gathering, right? Um, that there's not deforestation, that there's not poaching on it, but hey, they're the people of the forest, they're the protectors of the forest. They only take what they need. Like they, they're not poachers. They, 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 the forest is sacred to them. They're a part of nature. You know, us in the West and behind our Macs or with our headphones on, like, <laughs> like we think of ourselves as different than nature. Like we are apart from it. And like, no, we're human beings. Like we are you know, we're, we've advanced in so many ways, but like, like we came from dust, we're going to return to dust or whatever. Like, like we eat the plants, like we're, we are nature. And so they are, I've learned so much from them. And now in Uganda, we've got them 48 new acres of land. We're building 35 new homes. We already have built a road um, into where they're going to be. We have surveyed the land. We have the plans in place and uh, I'm so pumped because they're going to learn how to uh, build the homes for themselves. So they'll have dignity that they provided that for their, the, the husbands, the, the wives or the mothers and fathers. You know, they will be able to look at their children and say, we built this home. And then they can go out and build other homes for other people. They're also farming for themselves and they're being represented on the governmental level where they have a voice, where their chief shows up. Um, and just like any of the other tribes and they are included, they have a seat at the table which is for the first time in their history to own land, to have representation, to have clean water, to be included in that process of digging and drilling the wells, um, to have people in place that know how to are educated with the knowledge and equipped with the tools that they know how to fix it and they can afford to fix it and they have the tools to fix it themselves. And so that's what we wanted to do was the whole difference in, you know, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. So that's been our model is like opportunity is greater than charity. Charity mm-hmm. can be great, but opportunity is always better. So let's look for the opportunity in this charitable giving of like how the gifts that our donors give or the tools that we give as gifts, like how do those gifts keep on giving? Well, and that kind of somewhat answers your question too, as to like, well, how am I going to take this eyedropper and, Mm. you know, drop from, you know, the ocean and it seems endless, but yeah, if you were just to give only charity, that's essentially what you're doing. But Mm. when you give them the skill set and the, the setup where they can then do that themselves, teach the other, the other tribe members and folks around them how to do it, then all of a sudden it becomes more than just you with that eyedropper, but everyone with the eyedropper and you can, you can make a much bigger dent in, in, in the problem. Yeah, absolutely, man. And that, that's what I needed to, to learn, right? Like it's not all on me. Even, even when I burned out this year, um, maybe there was even a subconscious thought of like, 
and, and I don't think there was, cause I know this isn't all on me that it's way too much for, for one man. Right. But, but maybe being the founder or being maybe the spokesperson or something like that, you can, you can take all that, that weight on maybe, maybe you to run that hundred miles um, and to crush new world records. It's all on you. And, and maybe it is on, on fight day for me or on performance day for you, but it, it takes a tribe. It always does. And that's what they taught me is if you, it's that Swahili proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so maybe if you're a sprinter, you don't need as much of a team, but whenever you're going to run a hundred mile race, or whenever you're going to do the transcon transcontinental run, like you're, you're going to need a team of people there, mm-hmm. a tribe that's supporting you, feeding you, watching your pace, like there for anything that you need. And so for me, we've built a community of people that believe in, in the vision and mission um, to de- defend the weak, love the unloved, empower the voiceless, um, to truly give people not a handout, but a real hand up. And it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, uh, I was thinking the other day and I was like, man, if I walked by someone that was down and they got stuck in a pit, you know, I could, I could throw them a rope and hold that up there and maybe they could climb out, you know. Um, but if there's a, a ton of people down there, you know, I'm going to get tired and, and that guy's going to get tired. And it's like, what if we, you know, if I knew how to build a, a, a ladder, it'd be much better to like, even if I had to get down there in that pit with them, but if I have the tools and the know-how and, and I can show them how to build this ladder, like they can get out. And if they ever see someone else there, they can build another ladder. And that, that might need more like developing and how to share it. But, yeah. uh, but I was just thinking like, yeah, we're not just trying to throw a rope down to people we're trying to show them how to build ladders and, and teach them how so that they can show others how to build that ladder out of the, the poverty that they're in. It's like, and people that are stuck in poverty, they don't want to, they're not looking for that handout. They want, they crave, they desire, and they are pursuing if they can see it, if they can hear about it, if, if someone will teach them, they're pursuing that opportunity for a long-term solution, not a quick fix, uh, not a Band-Aid. And there's been a lot of toxic charity out there that's just like, you know, we got to punch holes in the ground or this or that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with the with the Pygmy tribe, uh, you said they're kind of hunter-gatherer. Can you, mm-hmm. are they still kind of more or less living that lifestyle or are they introducing like some farming practices and things as well now? Or can you tell uh, us a little bit about kind of their, what is what is their kind of, lifestyle i guess occupation is at that point is in terms of because you mentioned that they were eating fish and bananas is that kind of a staple of their diet or do they have like a more diverse kind of uh set of food staples and gatherings yeah it it depends each village is different and how remote they are and how much like their the translation is like virgin untouched forest right Mm -hmm. and so if there's a plethora or plenty of that and wildlife and there isn't a lot of deforestation where like the trees are, are that you could drive a mac truck through if those aren't being illegally logged and falling down and sounding like thunder roaring through the forest um, where it makes the animals scared and skittish and they take off then they can still hunt and gather but if there's a lot of deforestation around there which in congo at least over the last 20 years more than the size of texas has been deforested mm. where i where i land uh, used to be and, and drive six to eight hours to to hit the beginning of the rainforest that used to be in the rainforest 
Um, and now you got to drive six to eight hours to get to it, um, which is wild. So um, I would say that they are learning sustenance farming so that they can always provide for their children. But if they can go hunt and gather and they can get a kill and, and provide for the village, they do it. Um, and so, and you, and then it's like Uganda and Congo, there's differences there. Congo, they're always allowed to go hunt and gather in Uganda. It's restricted by the Ugandan wildlife authority. So it depends on if they can get to a forest where they can do it legally. Um, and then, uh, they, they know that they shouldn't and they don't, they respect the laws, um, in the Similiki national forest where, where they were evicted from. Uh, but man, like some of it's, uh, so silly, um, and political and corrupt, uh, to not let the people of forest be there to take animals that, that would really help the forest, the cycle of the forest. Um, and so, uh, anyways, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. And they're learning to farm for themselves and they're able to sell that at the markets, which has been really cool. One of the tribes we work with can never even make it to the market, uh, with their bananas, um, because they have the best bananas in, in quote unquote town, right. In the forest and, uh, everyone wants them. And so every hut they pass on the way there is are buying their, their bananas or the cars that drive by are buying their bananas because they're bigger, they're better. Um, and they're producing more because we, we have a little bit of an advantage, right? We have agriculturalists that help us teach them how to plant it the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to truly take care of their, their, uh, farm. And so that's been a, a really big blessing. Um, you know, we do corn or maize, we do passion fruit, we do peanuts, um, we do sweet potatoes, regular potatoes, beans, um, and uh, I'm missing some things, cassava, um, and yes, yeah, said uh, bananas already, but also plantains. Um, also, there's these little, my favorite bananas in the world are these ones that are like the size of your thumb or something that are just packed with sugar. Probably not good to eat a ton of, but, uh, but the, the starchy ones I kind of stay away from and those little, little guys I can't get enough of. Interesting. So is there, is there an effort being made at all to kind of put back or get some of that rainforest back or is that still yeah. a huge issue? Yeah. So, uh, in Congo, all of it is amazing forest that we got back for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's theirs and it's not supposed to be touched by anyone else, uh, but them. Uh, and so it's not being deforested. It's being protected. It's, uh, not just has, uh, boundary markers physically there, but it has GPS coordinates and, and a map and, and that's all, um, approved by local state and national government in Uganda. Uh, we got them back 48 acres of land that's close to a forest and it's more like a wooded, a big, big wooded area but it's not like the massive um, impenetrable forest as they call it there where the gorillas live and things like that. Um, But we are hoping as we expand and as we continue to grow and are able to fundraise that we could get them back even better rainforest. And we're looking to move South to another pygmy tribe that's in Uganda after we complete the work we've started um, in kind of the North uh, west part of you uganda that borders congo um, that will be able to expand and get them back um for us because they they belong to be in the forest that's where they want to be mm-hmm. um and they shouldn't be just forced out of it and men when they were forced out over 300 people were put on less than one acre of land behind a slum and said this is where you can live and they were given shacks with just 10 roofs and like, I'm talking, bro, 20 people sleeping shoulder to shoulder in these like shacks just on the ground um, with uh, the slums throwing out their sewage 
and you know, kids, that's where they play or that's where the parents cook. And I've watched them pick up firewood and get the big pots, you know, grabbing their own shirts to be able to grab the pots and move it because they're having to move it from the sewage that someone threw out from the slums. Like, so raw feces and urine coming straight down towards their food. And so, um, and no clean water. And so their village dwindled from just over 300 people to 152. And they were given no land to bury their dead. And I asked the chief, I was with Chris Cyborg, a female UFC champion, the most dominant MMA female ever. She's won four big titles, um, UFC, Bellator, uh, Strike Force, and um, another. And uh, she asked me and I asked uh, Chief Zito, I said, Zito, what's, what are these mounds that we're stepping on? And he goes, they don't give us anywhere to bury our dead. We live on top of our graveyard, on top of our cemetery. And it's like, oh, we got to do something, you know, like devastating, devastating that the kids are playing on that, that they're cooking on top of their cousin, their brother, their sister, you know, their mom, their grandma. And, um, and he was devastated telling us that, like he lowered his voice so that the rest of the people didn't hear. Mm. And, um, so that's whenever we were prompted, like, let's go look for land right now. Let's go see what's available. And so we sent out like our team to be like doing some scouting missions, like some recon, like go find like some, some land that's close enough to move them to, but not far enough to where they can't still go, um, you know, get forests like, like mushrooms that they love to get. They get these like bouquets of mushrooms to eat and they're delicious. And um, some other things that are from there, like, uh, uh, these berries, these roots that they cook up, um, these herbs that they, that they blend up and peppers, these little bitty peppers, bro, that are like a centimeter long or something. They're the hottest thing ever in the world, <laughs> red, yellows, and greens, and, uh, some crazy, brilliant, br- vibrant colors. And, um, so they still can go there and gather. Um, they're just not allowed to go in there and hunt. All right, folks, this episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers P3OM. P3OM are probiotics that improve your digestion and nutrient absorption, helping ensure your digestive tract and immune system stay strong and healthy. While many other probiotics on the market don't even survive your own stomach acid, P3OM is fully tested to make sure that probiotic strains not only survive in your body, but also don't compete with each other. So you're as protected as possible from the growth of bad bacteria and other pathogens. While other probiotics require refrigeration and often die in transport and on the shelf, P3OM doesn't need refrigeration at all. So if you're ready to check them out, head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash human. And by using promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, you'll also get 10% off your next order. So two things to remember, buyoptimizers.com forward slash human and promo code HUMAN10. All right, folks, now back to the show. Okay. And they're not allowed to live there, so. Mm-hmm. Was it, what was it like? Cause I'm guessing step one was like working with maybe some of the local governments to try to... Mm-hmm kind of, I guess, liberate the pygmy tribe to a degree? Like, what was the process like for that? Or was that already kind of in place when you when you stepped in? No, it wasn't in place at all. Um, that was over the year I lived there. And I would say we didn't heavily start working with them. We had approval for me to be there. But even the university that I worked with, I, I was a, 
I was a professor in the, um, the school of uh, community development. And um, that was kind of my cover to go out there. And I was doing community development, but one, they didn't want the government to know that I'd been some fighter and that had some sort of like notoriety because then the corrupt officials are going to think, you know, this fighter um, has money. Although I, I, I didn't, I was just there to serve. Um, so it wasn't until we started getting some traction till we started having some wins under our belt. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, here, here's how we drill wells. And not only do I know how to do it now, this team knows how to do it of locals. And guess what? They're going to help not only the pygmies, but they're also going to help the Macapala, which means the non pygmies. So we're here to help everyone. You know, we want to help. We're here to serve. How can we help? How can we serve? This is our plan. We've been sitting in a circle with the community, with the elders, with the, the wives, um, and, uh, with local governmental officials, and we've put this plan in place and we're ready to go. Can you come in now and approve it, you know, come to a well celebration. So we did have them come to our second water well celebration. Um, and we showed them what we were doing and they're like, wow, if you can do this here, you can do this pretty much anywhere. Um, so let's, let's get going, let's get moving. And so as we continued to grow and have more wins under our belt and have them a part of that and let them take credit for, for plenty of them too. You know, if it's their district, you know, we want to honor them and say, Hey, thank you for your support because if it wasn't for you, we couldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. Even though, uh, you know, um, sometimes we had a lot of support. Sometimes we didn't, you know, just giving them that respect and honor, um, you know, gets them to buy in even more because we want to, we want to help their people the most we can. And so having their backing really helps, and giving them that respect of like including them in on the process, like um, I think has them want to see this happen more. And so I think we've been able to bypass a lot of the corruption that's been there um, because it happens a lot when big NGOs come in there with a lot of money and a half a million or million dollar drilling rig and, and tons of shipping containers and they're backed by the United Nations and the United Nations is there and has like 4,000, 6,000 people living at this base a lot of those officials, they just see dollar signs, Mm -hmm. but when they see that you're small and that you're lean and that you're agile and that, and they hear the reaction of the people in the community, like this is different. This is working. This is long-term solutions. Like this is what we've been asking for. This is, this is good for us. Then, then they tend to buy in more. And whenever they have some skin in the game, whenever we ask them to be part, like we can't do this if you don't help us um, or we won't do this unless you help us like a lot of the villages we go to, we ask for a community involvement or um, a community contribution. They have to set up a a fund uh, with a treasurer and with a committee to uh, put very small, um, you know, investments back into like a repair, you know, like what if this well goes down, we need an account set to the side and we make sure that gets built there. Um, of two or $300, like, let's say the pump needs, uh, you know, just a quick replacement, you know, the gas money out there and the, the part that needs to be fixed and um, all that other stuff. Like we want them to have some buy-in or if we come to a village and um, we have all this equipment, one ton of well drilling equipment and we can't drive to where they live. It's like, all right, guys, uh, we have hundred, you know, we have 10 bags of 100, 110 pounds of cement. We've got uh, bricks, bags of bricks. We got charcoal. We've got uh, gravel and sand um, and these 
six meter long pipes or 20 feet long, like help us get this into the village. So it might be a 30 minute hike. It might be an hour. It might be three hours. But what that does is it, it has them have pride in it. They want to protect it more. Uh, They value it. They were part of the process. It wasn't just given to them. It was them helping provide that for themselves. And I think you see that in kids here, right? Like you give Mm -hmm. a kid a car and uh, he might drive it recklessly. And if he scratches it, it's not that big of a deal. But if he worked his butt off at, at a fast food restaurant and he saved up and he bought that thing for himself, he's going to protect that thing a lot more. Or if he contributed, you mm-hmm. know, he's going to feel part of that and, and value it. It almost seems like you uh, you essentially, since you were kind of a smaller operation, like the spotlight wasn't on you and, and your group. But once you kind of taught the pygmy tribe to be able to, you know, have a something that they could say, hey, look what we can contribute now all of a sudden the mindset went away from look these are the sub subhuman creatures that we we're just going to take advantage of to they're 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 valuable they have a skill set they're they're one of us and we could, or some in some cases maybe they have things that we don't and we want that too and that maybe ushered them in a little bit as more of a of a value member to to the rest of the groups yes absolutely so we always went in and met with both sides of the community together um, the oppressors and the oppressed or just the community is how we, we say it. And we'd have these community meetings and, and ask, you know, how should this go? Because we have a blueprint and we have an idea and we have a system and a process, but we know this isn't a cookie cutter solution. One size fits all. Every community is unique. This is how we think. What's our blind spots? What do you guys think? How can we do this? And then we would stand up and say, now, the first well we're, we're doing among the, the pygmy people to show you we can do it here and that they can help us. And once that's done, we're like, and we are now coming to you now, too. So we would invite them to the celebrations, uh, the slave masters. I've been to five funerals, bro, of the slave master tribes, kids under the age of five. So five children under the age of five years old. And that's from the people that are oppressing the pygmies. So now if we get to go to them and say, look, we got water for the pygmy people, which the premise of it was, or the idea behind it was we can't love one side and hate the other Mm -hmm. because we, or we can't help one side and neglect the other, because if we do that, it's only going to hurt in the long run, hurt the people we're trying to help the most. And so it was the, the process behind it is let's show them a win here where they don't think these people can have that big of a victory. And then we're going to come over to you and say, Hey, your, your, your children are getting sick from this. Your wives are getting sick from this. You stay home from work because of waterborne disease. And did you know that you and the, the community here in this district spends about $165 a year per household on waterborne disease? You, you probably, at least the community, only makes about a dollar to a dollar 25 per day. Do you know half of your income is going to just fight waterborne illness? What if you had clean water? What would that change? Mm-hmm. And asking them those questions is like, wow, I could go to work and not stay home sick. I'd be able to keep half my income. Uh, my wife could go to work. My kids could go to school. It's like, how big of a game changer is that? And they're like, wow, this changes everything. And it's like, well, we want to work with you guys. We, we just accomplished, we're about to accomplish it for the pygmy people, the Batwa in Uganda or the Mabuti in Congo. Like, let's, let's do this for you guys. Like we can do it. Right. And they're like, yeah, we can do this. And it's like, so we have your support. You have our support. Anything, you know, you need, we're, we're in. And it's like, wow. Like uh, it, it's been like 
a learning process. Um, but after you get a few wins, it's like all of a sudden you're drilling a new well in this village and both sides, the neighboring villages on each side are like, come here, please, you know, come over here, please. It's like, well, we got to figure out how we do this and schedule it in. You know, we got to grow our teams and from one team to two teams, and we've got to be able to go, you know, drill simultaneous wells, which we started doing. Um, and so, which has been a big win for us. Yeah. I mean, you made a fractured team whole is what you did. It sounds like it's all, it's a lesson. I think we could almost learn here yeah, well, in the United States to a degree time to time. Man, I, I love it. What they've said is that water has brought reconciliation. It's brought healing. It's brought forgiveness. It's brought like the community closer together. Um, like for the pygmy people who had been enslaved and for their slave masters, bro, they said that I remember sitting down with uh, a guy that was the nurse at the clinic there and he had records of every case that came through there. Right. And it was just in a, a big notebook, but for three years, each year, it was around 85 to 93% of their cases were just waterborne illness related. The year we drilled a well there, it dropped to like 12%. The next year we came in with wash programs, so sanitation and hygiene. We, uh, you know, set up latrines. We set up hand washing stations, and we got a, a sustainable solution for soap. It dropped like eight, and the next year it dropped to like six percent. He's like, "This has just changed my clinic. It's changed my tribe. It's changed my family." But he goes, "I want to tell you that my grandfather." was the either his grandfather's great grandfather was the first people to enslave the pygmies there whenever they couldn't provide for themselves anymore because of the deforestation. Um, it made them really vulnerable. He said, for my father, it started being uh, a burden for me. It really started being a, not a, not a benefit, but a, a burden. Cause I make a dollar, dollar 25 a day and I have to take care of my family and my wife manages the, uh, the, the pygmy people that, you know, we call ours kind of thing. I'm trying to use nicer terms. And he's like, this has brought reconciliation, but it's also brought like freedom to our family. Now I'm hearing a slave master say that the freedom for the pygmy people has brought freedom to his family, that it hasn't been like, it's hard. It became hard for them to take care of even their slaves. And so to allow them, like I, it's hard to put into words mm -hmm. everything. And that's why we had to write a book about it. And we're doing a documentary on it. It's like it land, water, food, like three essential things that everybody needs. You need a place to call home. You need clean water and you need to eat, you know, and that somehow, um, not somehow it, it just was the key to, to victory or key to freedom for, for this, tribe and now it's there's a lot more to do there's 400 to 600,000 Mabuti pygmies in just the Congo um, that uh, call someone master and we've seen you know over 1500 people transition out of that so there's a lot more work to do and there's uh, but uh, there's been some real success so we're excited yeah. It's it's amazing to hear hear you say it and are you planning on going back anytime soon or is it a while before you'll go back again I'm trying to see if I can go in January, February, but at the same time, uh, I'm moving to Austin. There's, uh, there's a, a fight, uh, in the future for me. It looks like I'm, um, in 2021 at some time, maybe the second quarter, I'll be starting my own podcast. And, uh, 
with all that, what I might do is just focus on here, uh, still casting the vision, get a fight under my belt, and then right after go back um, and celebrate the 35 homes being built there. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't want to say funny, but at the same time, it is funny. Like just to think of just like the, you've lived multiple lives almost. And you're, you're like, how old are you, Justin? 32, 33, 33, 33. So, I mean, you're younger than I am. That's I'm, I'm almost embarrassed. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but, but it's funny to hear that because like, you know, you have an entire fighting career, like at, and not just like at a rec gym downtown, you're like, you were a, a national champion wrestler. You, you know, fought in at Bell. Is it Bellator you're still fighting for? Is that the I'm fighting for Bellator? And I was in the Ultimate Fighter, or I was on the mm-hmm. Ultimate Fighter show and in the UFC. Yeah. So there's there's all of that on top of the just you know all you've done there, and then you know for folks interested as well, it's like your your charity has reached more than just the Congo. It's you know you're branching out now here in the United States and helping with uh, you know a bullying curriculum for schools in the United States as well. So it's like you haven't. There's, there's, I swear there's three or four Justin Wrens out there. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I I love you. And uh, you're, you're a a great ally and advocate for our organization and our purpose, but man, you're, you're, you're an incredible friend of mine. And uh, I'm so grateful that like, we can always pick up right where we left off because you're a busy, busy dude, me too. But at the same time, like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled to hear those words. So thank you. I don't want to just discard that or, or screw around <laughs> it, um, but it's been really cool. And it's only been because I have an incredible support system. Um, our board, our donors, friends like you. Um, when I say our donors, like honestly, like they're friends. They're the people who empower us to empower others. And so without that fuel to the fire, without people sharing our story, without Joe Rogan helping, you know, continue to document it, um, and without him being just the real deal, I mean, you, you've you've been on a show, um, uh, and and you know that when you've seen him multiple times, like he's the same guy mm-hmm. that he is on that podcast. I got to hang out with him and Dave Chappelle two nights in a row, or actually Friday night and last night or two nights ago, and um, just seeing those guys and how they interact with each other, how they grab the mic backstage or in the green room or at the after party of just family and friends. You know, them saying, remember these moments, you know, like, uh, like it was super inspiring seeing some people that are so great at their craft, you know, Dave Chappelle, one of the best to ever do it. Joe Rogan, the best podcaster, or at least the biggest reach and, um, and him, that dude's led 12 lives already, yeah. you know, like your <laughs> factor, UFC commentator, black belt on his own, right. And numerous, uh, uh, you know, Taekwondo and jujitsu, um, having, being able to talk to whoever at, at all that, like that dude inspires me where he can be a professional comedian, an actor, a commentator. Like he just, he's also a, a master pool player. He's also yeah. <laughs> art connoisseur. I mean, whatever the guy wants to do, he can master it. And so um, there's some really special individuals out there, Zach, and, and, and you're one of them, man, four world records, I think, and two world's best, or am I slaughtering that? Like, uh, <laughs> It's, yeah, it gets weird because some things are like documented distances. So like the 100 mile and the 12 hour are the, the official world records. And then the treadmill 100 mile and 12 hour are more, I guess, world best categories than anything. Um, and then I have a 100 miler like, I, I like to call it off road, because it's like when I think of trail, I think of more like, you know, technical steep climbing and descending versus like rails to trails type setup. But um, I've got the fastest 
hundred miler on an, an off-road course, I guess is what you'd call it. Um, wow. But yeah, I mean, that's just one foot in front of the other at a, a relatively fast pace, I guess. So it's, <laughs> I'm, I get a lot of inspiration from guys like you, Justin, I think. Uh-huh. Um, um, but yeah, t- tell us a little bit about the podcast because that's something pretty new, right? That's not something you've been doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's going to be a learning process. It's something that for me, I've said no to for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I've said, I've said, no, no, no. I've had the opportunity. I've had people really want to support it, really want to get back to it. And I just didn't have like, you know, that piece or that margin or that the opportunity didn't necessarily be like, now's the time. And I feel like um, with all the stars aligning and me being pulled down here to, to Austin, which is now becoming kind of a Mecca for podcast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, Joe's down here, young Jamie's down here. And then uh, uh, Aubrey Marcus is here. So many, a big podcast network is down here that I met with and, uh, I've been offered like them to to do all the heavy lifting and for me to just show up, sit down um, and uh, them to do the scheduling and me get to have amazing conversations with with people. And, and my goal isn't necessarily to have it be the biggest podcast in the world, although that would be great um, or, you know, aspire to to be the best. That's what you do. That's what the people watching this podcast do. But I definitely want it to be one of the most meaningful Um So a podcast with a purpose, have it be a safe space where stories that need to be shared are, where voices that need to be heard are given that opportunity. And for the podcast itself to give back, to do some really incredible things. I want it to be able to support fight for the forgotten, obviously, but also if, if there's an opportunity to support like, um, you know, whether it's through fight for the forgotten and, and young men like Raiden, I know that, uh, that us expanding into bullying prevention was one reason you were uh, drawn to help support us because, um, you know, you were a teacher, um, you have helped students with special needs or special education. You've seen those kids be bullied and you have a compassionate, uh, empathetic heart for them and an understanding, um, of, of what they go through. And so whether it's through Fight for the Forgotten or it's just some kid that we hear about that we can make a difference and the listeners can help, um, you know, I want to I want to be able to set up something really cool that um, that that is of meaning that matters. Right. And so I think, um, you know, it might be the Justin Wren podcast, but maybe it's something where there's three seasons. Think like Netflix or some of those podcasts that drop and season one might be bullying prevention and it could just be a catalog for people, whether it's a student, a parent, or someone that I had a 60 year old man in Kentucky with Jim, um, come up to me, like wiping his nose of, of, of snot and tears because my story of like me being bullied brought him back to something that he hadn't dealt with for over 40 years. Um, and it's like, wow, you know, like we could have that season be that another one be, mental health or suicide prevention. I've attempted suicide in my life twice so I can connect or relate with people like that. Also addiction. So maybe those three seasons um, and then go into a weekly regular uh, podcast from there. Um, But yeah, or maybe another podcast, maybe two where one might be, I don't know, impact unpacked, like just to throw that out there. I just talked to the guy at a meeting before I got here and creating a space where a container where people that have nonprofits or, uh, 
a calling or a business with a purpose, a social entrepreneur can come on and say how they made a difference or their big idea of how they're going to. Um, so that's kind of the, the idea or athletes that, that do it for, you know, that are going to run across America for a <laughs> cause they believe in, you know, like uh, I think it would be awesome. And so I'm glad you're doing podcasting and you are sharing your voice. I just think it's uh, a time for me to kind of step into that, that lane and just see what it's about and see if I can do it well. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be subscribing and following as soon as that first episode comes, goes up, but I think it'll, it'll be a great, it'll be a great experience for you. I know, uh, hey, you brother, know, thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and podcasting, I think it's, it's so much fun. I mean, you've gone on tons of podcasts at this point. So in, when I started, uh, this one with, uh, with Dr. Baker, um, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. Cause I was like, I thought like, well, you know, this'll be kind of similar to going on a podcast, but it's like, it's different and you have to kind of learn the ins and outs of that, but you'll, you'll figure that out soon enough. And then it'll be a, it'll be a great one to listen to. So I'll be excited to see that. Man. Thank you. Yeah. I think that, um, I feel on one way, super prepared just because I've done a lot over the last 10 years or Mm -hmm. at least the big ones. And then, uh, the other side, the flip side of the coin is like, oh man, now I'm sitting on the other side of the the desk or the camera or the mic. And it's like, I've got to be uh, super interested in what they're interested in. Or, or I don't know, like Joe's so interesting because of how interested he is in what, and how he always has something to talk about. And it comes from those passions and what he's interested in too. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous for it. I've, I've actually just spoken it out loud publicly for the first time with you, my man, and, uh, the listeners here. Um, so, um, now, now I got to do it. So yeah. 2021 <laughs> and I will do it. Um, but I want to do it well. And so I'll be, uh, you know, tuning into more of your, uh, you know, favorite episodes here and watching Joe, it's like watching fight film and, uh, and seeing, you know, what, what the, the greats do. And so I'll be, I'll be taking notes and lessons, but, uh, I'm excited, man. I think it's, uh, just like you're doing, you're making a difference in everyone's lives, uh, that listens to this. And so, um, I'm excited to do that on, on my own platform now too. Awesome, Justin. Well, um, before we go or cut off here, you want to share with the folks listening where they can find you, the social media websites, and then um, where they can, if they want to donate to Fight for the Forgotten, where they can go for that? Sure. Um, We're doing a, uh, I'm not sure if this will come out before the end of the year, but we're doing an end of the year push uh, right now to try to raise uh, $20,000. And the reason is because we have a matching gift where if we raise 20,000, it becomes 40,000. Mm. Uh, but if we don't, we lose it. And so um, it's one of those like get it or it's gone kind of things. And, and it, it motivates us to go raise the funds and it motivates givers to, to give because they know if they give a dollar, someone else matches that with a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's off, uh, available at fightfortheforgotten.org. Anytime uh, people can, can sign up to give monthly, um, they can give one time, uh, they can give to this, or, or if we miss this, then, then at any time, any dollar you know, counts. I, I've been sharing how people live on a dollar to a dollar 25 a day there. That just shows how much a dollar goes there. Right. And so, um, but people can follow me at fightfortheforgotten.org or they can go on Instagram at, at uh, the big pygmy. So the pygmies that name me, uh, F-A-O-S-A, Mabutimangbo. <laughs> you gotta say it like that or it doesn't make sense. And it just means the big pygmy. So uh, the pig, pygmy is spelled P-Y-G-M-Y. Um, and I am on Facebook, but I don't really use it. Uh, so you can follow me 
mostly at Instagram. Awesome, Justin. We'll have to come come have you come back on and maybe yeah. share some some stories about your other three lives. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. And uh, when I get out to Phoenix, I'll look you up. And if you get out to Austin, uh, come visit or come back to home base in Oklahoma. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's it's never hard to get Nicole to want to go to Texas because she was in Dallas for about 10 years and loves yeah. Austin. She actually went to cool. Baylor, so um, she's right around that area for a while. Well, Mama Bear for me, my mom and grandma are in uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. So yeah. I'll come up and see you. Perfect. Sounds good, Justin. Okay. Thank you. Thanks brother. again. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.